بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله we've now reached lesson 71 in the radiant light our study of the seerah of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and for quite a while we've been looking at the events that have taken place in the second year after the hijrah to Medina and we're still in that second year in fact we're just three weeks out after the Battle of Badr and three weeks out or three and a half weeks out after the Battle of Badr, we come to a very pivotal moment in the story of the Prophet and that is concerning the events surrounding Banu Qaynuqa', one of the three Jewish tribes in Medina. It was in the second year after the Hijrah, three and a half weeks or so after the Battle of Badr, that the Prophet ﷺ took the decision to expel the entire tribe of Banu Qaynuqa' from Medina. And when you hear that, it sounds very drastic. It sounds like a very momentous and heavy thing, and it was. So today we want to look at what led to that and what lessons are drawn from that. So, before we can go into the details of Banu Qaynuqar and how they were expelled from Medina, we have to go back two years to the Hijrah and what took place in the earliest part after they arrived in Medina. Soon after the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina making his Hijrah, he established a pact, a covenant a mithaq that included the Aus, the Khazraj, and the three Jewish tribes of Banu Qaynuqa', Banu Nadir, and Banu Quraidah. And all of these groups were party to that covenant, this mithaq. This mithaq, we had one or two classes talking about that pact, and we said that it defined the political arrangement in Medina with the Prophet ﷺ as the ruler. And it also defined the relationship between the Muslims among themselves and the relationship of the Jewish tribes and the attitude and relationship they would have towards this new community with this new ruler and this new system of governance, this new way of governing the people. And there were many aspects to that covenant. But among those articles in the Mithaq that the Jewish tribes all agreed to were that they would uphold the cost of war as long as they were fighting alongside the Muslims. This was before the jizya was instituted as law, before it was revealed. And at this time, the Jewish tribes are agreeing to pay for the cost of war 
and to participate in the defense if they are attacked by an outside party. This is what they agreed to. And they also made an agreement in this pact that they would not make any unilateral decisions about war. So this is a contract where they're not allowed to engage with outsiders and conspire with outsiders against the community. They're not allowed to do this. They were all party to this agreement. They were all signatories to it. The Aus, the Khazraj, and these three Jewish tribes. So this document, called the Mithaq of Medina, established the political authority of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina and was meant to ensure peace and safety in that society. Now, when you look at the content of the Mithaq and the signatories, you realize very quickly that the Jewish tribe signed on to this and agreed to it, not out of conviction in the Prophet ﷺ, not out of Iman, it was done out of political expediency. They had no other choice, really. What else were they going to do? The tides had turned. And so they agreed to this out of political expediency. Now, these three Jewish tribes we've talked about before. We've mentioned a bit about their history and the theories about how they ended up in Yathrib before it became Medina. There are theories that they came as exiles from the, the regions of, of Palestine and they were exiled. There are also theories that they're not actually from Bani Israel originally or ethnically, but they're actually Arabs that converted to Judaism many, many generations before. So these three tribes lived for quite a long time in Yathrib, and they are three, Banu Qaynuqa', Banu Nadir, and Banu Quraidha. These three tribes, they speak Arabic. They intermarried with the Arabs, if you say that they're outsiders. They adopted Arab customs. They adopted Arab names. They adopted the Arab dress of the time, but they always considered themselves as outsiders. They always saw themselves as outsiders vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Aus and the Khazraj. They did not see themselves as being from them as a people. And that defined the relationship they had with the Aus and the Khazraj. They would call them illiterate and naive and backwards and barbarians because they were, after all, idol worshippers. But a part of that was also exploitative. They, they believed that it was permitted for them to exploit the Aus and the Khazraj, to exploit them economically. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed different verses in the Qur'an describing that attitude they had towards the Aus and the Khazraj. Now, it could be theorized that the Jewish tribes welcomed this new peace because, after all, the Prophet ﷺ came bringing islah, rectification. He came building bridges between the Aus and the Khazraj and ending this long civil war that was taking place between them. So it, it's conceivable that they welcomed this new peace, but we know from their actions that they still wanted a return to the previous status quo and the rank that they had in society. But now the Aus and the Khazraj 
have become Muslim. Now they are allied together. There are still certain tribal tensions because those things take a long time to die out. But they are united not by blood ties, not by tribal ties or clan ties. What unites the Aus and the Khazraj is La ilaha illallah, Muhammadun Rasulullah, this deen. So this gave a lot of strength now that wasn't there before. Because before it was the Aus fighting the Khazraj, the Khazraj fighting the Aus, and these three Jewish tribes were allying with one or the other and taking advantage of that situation. But now they're united under the leadership of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So this covenant that they agreed to, it allowed the Jewish tribes to share with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in that strength. However, it also required that they incur the cost of any future war against a materially and numerically superior Quraysh. So they don't like the idea that they may be forced, according to the terms of the contract they agreed to, to contribute financially, materially, and physically to a future war against Quraysh, who are greater in number and greater in material. They didn't like this. So that is the backdrop. That's the background to the expulsion of Banu Qaynuqa, the entire tribe. Right? That is in the background. So what is the story of their expulsion? Now of these three Jewish tribes, we're talking about Banu Qaynuqa right now. In the future, you're going to see how these things escalate. There's Banu Qaynuqa, there's Banu Nadir, and Banu Quraida. Each tribe escalates even uh, more than the previous tribe, as we see. So, of these three Jewish tribes, Banu Qaynuqa was seen as the most prominent and also the boldest in their plotting. What were Banu Qaynuqa, what was their main source of income? It wasn't agriculture. Their main source of income was as goldsmiths, jewelers, goldsmiths. That's what they did. And how many people made up the tribe of Banu Qaynuqa? It's hard to get an exact number, but we can make some estimated guesstimates uh, because we have in the hadith a description of them being 700 able-bodied men ready to fight. So they, they're described as a tribe with 700 men who are able-bodied and able to fight. So from that you can extrapolate, well, there's younger people, there's older people, there's women and children. We could say 2,000, 2,500, maybe more, maybe slightly less. So you, we remember that Medina in that time, it is a city, but it's still a very small city. And 2,000, 2,500 more or less. We have about 700 men that are fighting age. Now, after the battle of Badr, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave a decisive victory to the Muslims, Banu Qaynuqa expressed a great deal of resentment at this victory. They were not happy with the fact that the Prophet and the Muslims were granted victory. And they wanted to cast aside this mithaq, this covenant that they agreed to. Remember, 
that one of the key terms in the covenant is that they would not fight the Prophet ﷺ or support anyone who fights the Prophet ﷺ. So what exactly happened and what caused their expulsion? In the seerah of Ibn Hisham and others, we have two specific accounts. And we're not sure which one came first. But we'll mention them aware that we're not sure which one came first because it doesn't really matter. The Sirah accounts say that in the 15th of Sha'ban, which wasn't too long ago for us, the 15th of Sha'ban, in the second year after the Hijrah, three and a half weeks after Badr, this tribe was expelled from Medina. Ibn Ushaq, he mentions that after the battle of Badr, Banu Qaynuqa' were saddened and resentful at the loss of the Quraysh, and they were sad that the Muslims were victorious. So what happened? The first narration tells us that the Prophet ﷺ went out to the market of Banu Qaynuqa'. This is about, it's about a 20 minute walk from where the Prophet ﷺ is. A 20 minute walk. He goes to the marketplace where Banu Qaynuqa' and the tribal chiefs had gathered and he admonished them. He criticized them for their animosity and he reminded them of the terms of the treaty, the mithaq that they agreed to. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, he records that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said to them, O assembly of Jews, enter Islam before Allah causes that which befell Quraysh to befall you. And in another wording, a similar narration says that he told them, be warned by Allah of the likeness of what befell Quraysh of vengeance to befall you. You should enter Islam for you know that I am the prophet bilhaq in truth. You know that I am the final prophet in truth and you find as much in your scripture confirming that. And that is Allah's covenant with you. He reminds them of this truth and he admonishes them. So as he's there in the marketplace talking with the chieftains of Banu Qaynuqa, warning them and admonishing them and giving them da'wah, they become very haughty and arrogant. And in their pride and hubris, one of the tribal elders among them stood up and said, O Muhammad, do not deceive yourself that you defeated a group from Quraysh who are inexperienced and do not know fighting. For were, we t- for were you to fight us, you would find that we are a people to contend with and you have not met anyone like us. These are what we call fighting words. Even in today's so-called genteel soft society, if someone says you're soft, and don't think that because you fought that person, you can handle me. If you come to me, I will bring the smoke, as they say. That's a, those are fighting words. That is a challenge. So this is the first narration. They're basically telling the Prophet ﷺ, don't let your recent victory over Quraysh delude you into thinking that you can defeat us. If you try that with us, we'll give you something. So this was... The first incident, we don't know if it's the first or second, but this, these are the two incidents, one of the two incidents 
that led up to the expulsion. Now concerning this specific incident in the marketplace and what they said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in the Qur'an the following words. He instructs the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to say this. قُلْ لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا سَتُغْلَبُونَ وَتُحْشَرُونَ إِلَىٰ جَهَنَّمْ وَبِئْسَ الْمِهَادِ قَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ آيَةٌ فِي فِئَتَيْنِ الْتَقَتَىٰ فِئَةٌ تُقَاتِلُ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَأُخْرَىٰ كَافِرَةٌ يَرَوْنَهُمْ مِثْلَيْهِمْ رَأْيَ الْعِينِ وَاللَّهُ يُؤَيِّدُ بِنَصْرِهِ مَنْ يَشَاءُ إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَعِبْرَةً لِأُولِي الْأَبْصَارِ Allah Jalla Jalaluhu, the Lord of the heavens and the earth, says, قُلْ Say to them, tell the disbelievers, soon you will be overpowered and driven to Jahannam. Mihad. What an evil place to rest. Indeed, there was a sign for you in the two armies that met in battle. One fighting for the cause of Allah and the other kafira in denial, in rejection of Allah. The believers saw their enemy twice their number, but Allah supports with his victory whomever he wills. Surely in this is a lesson for people of insight. These verses were revealed about the incident in the marketplace. And the Prophet ﷺ communicated these verses. So you see things are escalating right now. The Seerah accounts mention two narrations. As I said, we don't know which one came first. Was it the marketplace incident where he admonished them personally? Or was it this second incident? We don't know which one took place first. It doesn't matter. But that's the first one in the order of events I'm giving you today. There's a second narration which also describes what's going on leading up to their expulsion. And this is recorded by Ibn Hisham and others. And it's mentioned that there was a woman from the Ansar, a woman from the Ansar who went to the marketplace of Banu Qaynuqa. What do they do for a living? They're goldsmiths. So she goes there to sell some of her items, get a good price, and use that money to purchase some gold. So she goes to this marketplace, and she sold her merchandise. Then she went to this goldsmith, and with that money, she wanted to buy some gold. Now, these are all goldsmiths from Banu Qaynuqa. One of them, it, it seems from the language that he's either teasing her or maybe he's even trying to flirt with her. So he's telling her to remove her face covering. Now this is before the ayat about hijab, but this was a customary way for many of the women to, to dress. So he's telling her to remove her face covering, but she refused. So as she's there, looking at the gold and negotiating the prices and so on and so on the goldsmith in question makes an ishara some kind of indication to someone else behind her to take the garment and pin it to some object maybe it's a nail a board something to pin the back of her garment to some object as they were talking and she's distracted and then as she stands up, that causes the garment to be pulled and ripped, exposing herself, exposing her aura 
and causing her great shame and embarrassment. And she stood up and this exposed her. And then they began to laugh. As they're laughing at her, this Ansari woman, she screams. Maybe in your mind you're trying to imagine how this could have happened. You have to understand the simplicity of the garments back then. If you look at, if you go to the Topaki Palace in Turkey, or look at the pictures of the clothing contained in the museum, you'll see the garments in that time still preserved. And these garments are very simple garments, one-piece garments. It is very easy for something like that to be pinned and ripped if the person stands up. So she stands up, is exposed, she begins to scream, and they just keep laughing at her. This drew the attention of a Muslim nearby in the marketplace, a Muslim man. And this man goes over to see what's happening, and he sees this disgusting offense they committed against her. And out of anger, these are Arabs, you know, this is not, this is not a game, he unsheaths his sword and he cuts that goldsmith down right there on the spot. But he's outnumbered. He's in their marketplace. So what do you think happens? The other people from the market, from Banu Qaynuqa, they surround him and they kill him on the spot. This is what happened. So when the news of this reached the family, they went to the community to ask for help against Banu Qaynuqa. The Prophet ﷺ learns about this horrible incident and he sends them a very clear and decisive message. You have broken the treaty. You have broken the treaty. And it's significant that the Prophet ﷺ sends them a message informing them, you have broken the mithaq that you were party to, that you agreed to. The question is, why didn't the Prophet ﷺ just get up immediately and go straight there and respond with force? Why did he send them a message first telling them, you have broken the treaty, this treaty is now between us and you, null and void. The reason why he did that is because it is haram in Islam. If you have a treaty with a group of people, it is haram in Islam to break that treaty in secret. So if a group of people with political force, a country for instance, has a treaty with another group of people, country maybe, with political force, the Muslims cannot... uh, unilaterally break the treaty without telling them beforehand. They can't just do a sneak attack and surprise, we broke the treaty, now we're at your door. You can't do that in Islam. In Islam, if you break the treaty, if they broke it, or if you're breaking it for them violating something, you have to let them know. You have to make an announcement. And this is revealed in the Quran. Allah Ta'ala mentions this in Surah Al-Anfal, وَإِمَّا تَخَافَنَّ مِنْ قَوْمٍ خِيَانَةً فَانْبُذْ إِلَيْهِمْ عَلَى سَوَاءٍ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ الْخَائِنِينَ And if you see signs of betrayal by a people, respond by openly terminating your treaty with them. Indeed, Allah does not love those who betray. So 
This is what the Prophet ﷺ did. But they were so full of arrogance. They were so full of what we call hubris, thinking that they can do this in their marketplace and nothing would come of it. There would be no consequence to this. They were so full of themselves and so sure that they can do this and nothing would happen as a result. When the Prophet ﷺ, however, told them that the treaty had been broken, they realized they made a huge mistake. And what did they do? They went straight to their fortresses. What fortresses? In the time of the Prophet ﷺ, and this is predating his time, these Jewish tribes constructed very strong fortresses. What is a fortress in Arabic? I think it's the same in Urdu. Qala'a. Right? Qala'a. Right? A qala'a is a fortress. And these Jewish tribes would build these very large walled compounds. And inside of those compounds would have fortresses. So they look different ways. You know, some were larger than others. And Banu Qaynuqa, they went to their fortress. They locked those doors. And they kept themselves inside. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed something about this reality. In Surah Al-Hashar, this is the verse so many people know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَا يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ جَمِيعًا إِلَّا فِي قُرًا مُحَصَّنًا Allah says, even united, they would not dare fight against you except from within fortified strongholds or behind walls. This is what Banu Qaynuqa did. They went straight to their fortresses, they locked the doors, they manned the gates, and the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims do not have the technology to break these walls down. So if you are in the pre-modern period and an enemy force is held up in a town, a city, a garrison, a fortress, how do you fight them? There's only, there's really only one tactic you can use. And that is hisar. That is siege warfare. Siege warfare basically means you surround the area, you man the outside of the gates, you don't let supplies in, and you wait them out. Because they don't have an unlimited food supply inside of this fortress and they probably don't have a, a direct water supply either so it becomes a waiting game and as long as you're outside of the fortress sieging it not allowing supplies to go inside you just have to wait long enough for them to get desperate enough to surrender unless someone from the inside decides to unlock the door and open the gate for you and that's happened in Islamic history and there's even more amazing stories of fortresses getting opened through very interesting means. Um, we'll save that for another class. So the Prophet ﷺ immediately marched out with the Muslims and went to their compounds. They didn't have the ability to break down the fortress, so they laid siege to the compound and cut off the supplies. This was a norm in pre-modern warfare across all civilizations. And they remained in this state, sieging the compound from the outside for two whole weeks. 
Banu Qaynuqa is holed up inside for two weeks and finally they surrendered. They surrendered without a fight. The Prophet ﷺ, upon their surrender, ordered that all of the men of Banu Qaynuqa be gathered together and tied up, and then he would decide what he's going to do with them. So the Prophet ﷺ, he decides that because they broke this treaty, they're going to be expelled. They're no longer allowed to, sh- to, to share with the people in living in this city of light. They'll have to leave and go somewhere else. That's it. No bloodshed, no fighting, no, no capital offenses. You just have to go. That was the decision that the Prophet ﷺ made. And the hadith tells us that he gave them three days to pack up their belongings and find someone else, somewhere else to go. So during this period, they were panicked and they were unsure what to do. So they're trying to find ways of talking the Prophet ﷺ out of this decision. So what do they do? They go to their former allies among the Khazraj. Because we have Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Nadir, Banu Quraidha. Banu Qaynuqa allied with the, the Khazraj when the Khazraj were fighting against the Aus. So those are old allies. And among those allies, there were two people in particular who were basically the representatives of Khazraj as the, the awliya. We can call them the patrons, the guardians, the protectors. Um, the people who were in, what's the word we use in everyday English? The liaison, right, between them and the Khazraj. So who were these two people? The first one was Ubadah ibn Samit radiallahu anhu. And the other was none other than Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul who is the head of the Munafiqeen. We talked about him last week. So they reached out to these old allies to ask for help. Basically, Shafa'a, do something so that we're allowed to stay. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, he goes to the prisoners and there's a Muslim that's guarding these male prisoners. His name is Mundir ibn Qudama. And he tells Mundir to release all of the prisoners. And he's so arrogant. Let him go. Mundir says, no way. He says, let him go. He says, release them, Mundir, or I will let them go on my own accord. He says, if you try to do that, I will cut you down right here and right now. There was no game. His job was to guard these prisoners. He's not letting them go. So when this happens... Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul, no, he can't release them on his own. He goes to the Prophet ﷺ to plead on behalf of Banu Qaynuqa. But look at the way he does it. It's so instructive. He goes to the Prophet ﷺ and he says, Oh Muhammad, treat my allies well. What do you notice here? What's, what stands out from that? Exactly. He doesn't say, Ya Rasulullah. He doesn't say, Ya Nabi Allah, O Muhammad. You don't have examples of the Sahaba going around saying, 
oh Muhammad this, oh Muhammad that. It's always, Ya Rasulullah, Ya Nabi Allah, and so on. Right? The only people we know of who are calling him by his first name are Quraysh, the Munafiqun, and some of the ignorant Bedouins who have not yet learned. They became Muslim, but they're ignorant. They haven't been taught yet the etiquette of addressing the Prophet So we don't include them in this. But he goes and says, Oh Muhammad, treat my allies well. What does the Prophet ﷺ do? He ignores him. So he repeats it. Oh Muhammad, treat my allies well. The Prophet ignores him. He says it a third time, but this time he goes to the Prophet ﷺ and he puts his hands within the collar of the armor of the Prophet ﷺ. Remember, they're still there. They came out, they surrendered, they're tied up. So the Muslims are still in their battle attire. They're still wearing their armor. They're still armed. He grabs the armor, the breastplate at the collar, pulls it forward, and he's grabbing onto it and says, Oh Muhammad, treat my allies well. And Rasulullah says, Leave me be. Leave me. Abdullah bin Ubay was not taking no for an answer. And you're wondering, where's Omar? <laughs> Abdullah bin Ubay says, No. By Allah, I will not leave you until you treat my allies well. 400 men with armor and 300 with armor, that's 700 fighting men, have protected me from the Arabs and they have protected me from foreigners. So they're working in tandem. These are his people. They've looked after him. He looks after them. He says, you wish to destroy them in one morning. But I am a man who fears Ad-Dawair. Uh, What's Dawair? Uh, you could say Dawair means I fear the calamities of fate. I fear the calamities of fate. Bad f- misfortune befalling me. Right? Akhsha Ad-Dawair. And the Prophet ﷺ said, They're yours. May Allah not bless you in them. He didn't release them. He just said, they're yours. May Allah not bless you in them. So from the construction of the story, we get the sense that this incident took place before the decision was made to exile them. How, how come? Because Ubay, Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salu is under the impression that they're going to be executed. And he's saying, you're going to lay waste to them in one morning when they've done all this for me. So it appears that this took place before Allah Ta'ala inspired the Prophet ﷺ to have them exiled. So they were told to be exiled. They were given three days. And we mentioned that there's two allies here. There's Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul. And there is Ubadah bin Samit radiallahu anhu. Ubadah bin Samit radiallahu anhu, he goes to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam because he knows that the Prophet knows that he was an ally to Banu Qaynuqa. He's a prominent figure in Medina. He recognizes that that position, that former position is known. So he goes to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he says, Ya Rasulullah, not O Muhammad, Ya Rasulullah, I want to tell you that I am no longer their ally. I'm not their wali anymore. My wali, and here wali is a 
It's kind of hard to translate. My guardian, my protector, my ally is Allah and his messenger. And I have cut off all my ties to Banu Qaynuqa. And they were given three days. Ubadah bin Samit was appointed in charge of overseeing the expulsion. They were given three days. And Banu Qaynuqa, they wanted an extension of the three days. They didn't feel it was enough time, obviously, to gather their belongings. They knew that putting up a fight was futile at this point. There's no way they would have won this. So they reluctantly accepted this. But they asked for an extension. They needed more time. But Ubadah, who's now in charge of making sure they get out of Medina and go wherever they're going to go, he says, I will not delay your departure for a single hour. You have three days, and I will not add any more days to that. In fact, that is the order of the Messenger of Allah wasallam. And if it were up to me, I would not give you any time at all. Just straight out. That's Ubadah. So it's concerning these incidents. We have the response of Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul. And we have the response of Ubadah bin Samit. Both of these responses to the expulsion of Banu Qaynuqa are described in the Quran. Verses to be recited. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the believers about this incident. And he mentions the stance of the head of the hypocrites, bin Salul, and the stance of Ubad bin Samad. Allah Ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, la tattakhidhu al-yahuda wal-nasara awliya ba'dhuhum awliya ba'd. Wa man yatawallahum minkum fa innahu minhum. Inna allaha la yahdi al-qawm al-zalimin. O you who believe, do not take the Jews or Christians as awliya, these protectors and allies, they are awliya of each other. Whoever does so will be counted as one of them. Surely Allah does not guide the wrongdoing people. Now you see the context of that verse. That verse does not mean, oh, you can't be friendly to your, your non-Muslim co-worker. You can't have a, you know, a friend you play basketball with. This verse is not revealed concerning that kind of relationship is revealed about the relationship we just described of being guardians and protectors in, in this sense. So this is not about people who do not bear any animosity towards Islam and the Muslims and those who are not doing anything to fight against the deen. And awliya here mean protectors, guardians, allies of the strongest kind. Allah Ta'ala says, do not take them as those kinds of awliya. After this verse, Allah Ta'ala mentions, فَتَرَى الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٍ يُسَارِعُونَ فِيهِمْ يَقُولُونَ نَخْشَى أَن تُصِيبَنَا دَائِرًا فَعَصَ اللَّهُ أَنْ يَأْتِيَ بِالْفَتْحِ أَوْ أَمْرٍ مِنْ عِنْدِهِ فَيُصْبِحُ عَلَى مَا أَصَرُّ فِي أَنفُسِهِمْ نَادِمِينَ You see those with sickness in their hearts racing for their guardianship. Who is that? Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salul. Racing for their guardianship, saying to justify, We are afraid 
of a misfortune striking us. Isn't that exactly what he said? He said, I'm afraid of misfortune befalling me. And Allah reveals that they say, Then Allah says, But perhaps Allah will bring about your victory or another favor by His command, and they will regret what they have hidden in their hearts. This is interesting because did Abdullah bin Ubay change? The door is open, but he never went through that door. He remained. He got worse, in fact, at Uhud. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّمَا وَلِيُّكُمُ اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَلَّذِينَ يُقِيمُونَ الصَّلَاةَ وَيُؤْتُونَ الزَّكَاةَ وَهُمْ رَاكِعُونَ وَمَنْ يَتَوَلَّ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا فَإِنَّ حِزْبَ اللَّهِ هُمُ الْغَالِبُونَ Allah says, your only awliya, your only guardians are Allah, His Messenger and fellow believers who establish salat and pay zakat with humility. Whoever allies themselves with Allah, His Messenger and fellow believers, then it is certainly Allah's party that will prevail. So these are verses praising Ubadah bin Samit. Praising him for his stance when he said, I choose Allah and his messenger, they're no longer my allies. So that was his stance. Now, we're going to see in, as we continue through the seerah, that the two remaining Jewish tribes of Banu Nadir and Banu Quraidah are actually going to do worse than what Banu Qaynuqa did. They're going to do worse. They're actually going to escalate hostilities. And they're going to have even harsher consequences than what befell Banu Qaynuqa. So with the offense comes a consequence that is proportionate to the offense. Banu Nadir and Banu Qulayda do worse and the consequence is harsher as well. It, it escalates. And interestingly, uh, you would think that if there are three tribes and two of the tribes see what happens to Banu Qaynuqa being expelled, you would think that would deter them. It didn't deter them. There's that hubris, that, that attitude that they can do whatever they want and they're not going to really worry about the consequences. And that's what's going to befall them. Now, we don't have to be apologetic about any of this. We don't present the seerah uh, and we don't apologize for history. We don't apologize for sacred history. And we say, as Sheikh Muhammad Sa'id Ramadan al-Bulti said, Rahimahullah, in his fiqh sirah and I quote, Had they respected the covenants and agreements into which they had entered with the Muslims, there would not have been so much as a single Muslim willing to utter an offensive word to them or disturb them in their homes or elsewhere. However, they were bent on evil and they themselves suffered its consequences. That's it. Should there be no consequences to breaking treaties? Should there be no consequences to threatening warfare? That's a breaking of the treaty. And they knew, they know from prior experience that these are consequences that befall people who break their treaties and conspire. So to intimate war, to utter threats, and 
to assault a woman and then kill a man. All of these things break the covenant they agreed to. So no one should fall for any gaslighting, you know, to use a, a modern term people use a lot these days. No one should fall for any gaslighting from people who pretend that this was without just cause. Don't let anyone gaslight you and think, oh, how harsh. Yes, it's harsh, but it's justified. Some harsh things are justified. We're not, we're not hippies. Some harsh things are justified. That is the nature of living in civilizations. If you don't have penalties for breaking treaties, then what happens is eventually you get run over and utterly destroyed and stomped on. That's the political reality. So that's the story in a nutshell. Now maybe you're wondering, okay, well what happened to Banu Qinuqa? They got expelled, then what? Where did they go? And what happened to them? What became of Banu Qinuqa? Fortunately, we have the answer to that in the seerah. In the seerah, they mention, Ibn Hisham mentions this, that uh, Ubadah bin Samad radiallahu anhu, he oversaw their departure, and he also followed them the entire way until they got all the way to Sham. And they stopped at a place, uh, they, they, they call it Adru'at, uh, uh, I don't know if that's a place that exists today, but they mentioned this place. And it said that they stayed there for a while, and then he left, he went back to Medina. And it said, yuqal, it said that they stayed there for a period of time, and eventually they just died out over a generation. They didn't really, they didn't thrive. So they didn't regenerate and become a part of the society there and endure on into the next generations. They just died out in that generation. And some of the ulama of Sirah say that that is because when they got there, they didn't thrive because the Prophet ﷺ said to Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salud, when he's grabbing him, he said, they're yours. May Allah not bless you in them. They had no barakah. Barakah is ziyadah, it's growth, it's continuity. And because the Prophet ﷺ prayed that barakah be stripped from them, there was no growth, there was no continuity, and they eventually died out. Now, they were given three days. Do you think that was enough time for them to gather all of their belongings? That's impossible. They were unable to gather all of their belongings. They took essentials, of course, and they took a lot of their things, but they had to leave a lot of things behind. And that was taken as ghanima, uh, ghanaim. Uh, there's a distinction between ghanima and fay. There's two different terms. Uh, this is in the early period still before a lot of the fiqhi details of the spoils of war are defined. Ghanima is typically what is seized in battle, the spoils of war. And fay is typically what is taken without direct combat. And it's kind of surrendered or left behind. So they didn't have farms because they're goldsmiths. They weren't an agricultural tribe. So what they had were those forts and what they left behind uh, included weaponry, armor, and lots of different tools. And all of these things were taken as ghanima. Interestingly, in the seerah, they describe some of what was taken. They mention that the Prophet ﷺ took for himself three bows. And one of the bows was named Katum. Katum, the silent one. And it said that it was called the silent one because when 
you fire it, it would not make a loud noise. It was very silent. And this bow was broken during the battle of Uhud. Another bow he had was Rawha, and another one was Bayda. So he took these three from the spoils. He also took for himself two sets of armor. One was called uh, Sagadiya, and the other was Fidda. These are mentioned in the Shama'il, by the way. Uh, and there are three swords the Qal'i sword, Al Battar, and Hatf. And he took three spears. And I don't know the names of the spears, but the swords and the bows are named. That was a tradition. And we talked about that in the Shama'il, how the Prophet ﷺ would name different objects. And those are some of the names of the weaponry and armor. And the rest of the Ghanima was divided up among the Muslims who laid siege to the forts. And that is the story in a nutshell. And uh, next week we'll probably summarize a few of the smaller events that took place between the expulsion of Banu Qaynuqa and the lead up to the battle of Uhud so that when we come back after Ramadan inshallah we go straight into the lead up to Uhud and the battle of Uhud itself bi-ithnillahi ta'ala wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam